above it because this, this metal roof can really get loud. <clears throat> well, last week we went into uh, Psalm and Ezekiel and then into Genesis 2 about how easily human beings, Adam and Eve, succumbed to Satan, to his way of thinking, and their naivete, their innocence, was all suddenly stripped away so very quickly and so easily, it seems. They had never had negative emotions of any kind, and suddenly there was blame, there was shame, there was selfishness, greed, envy, uh, every discouragement, every negative emotion you can think of suddenly appeared. I'm sure that this situation was followed by depression and frustration, uh, discontent between them. It probably led to all kinds of arguments and accusations that were ongoing because she blamed him and he blamed her. And God actually blamed Satan and he blamed man and woman and put a curse upon all three parties involved. So, there was unleashed every evil thing that is in human nature in just a very short period of time in which Satan was able to lead them astray. How quickly it happens. Now you would have think, you would think perhaps that Satan would have retired at that point because he had done a good day's work in seducing Eve and Adam into sin. But he didn't retire at all. His object and purpose is to destroy all mankind from off the face of the earth. He does not want anyone to enter the God family. It's something that was never really offered to him. He was a created being with a great deal of power, with a great deal of wonderful emotion and worship toward God in heaven. And that was destroyed when vanity and ego, selfishness, selfishness began to enter his mind. And from there it grew very rapidly into a total rebellion hatred and bitterness against God. So, even though he had everlasting life, it could have been a pleasant life. But as a result of his rebellion against God, it became a miserable, frustrating, depressing, hate-filled life. A life not worth living or having, but one he will not turn loose of because of his deep selfishness. Now, he understands the purpose and the plan of God and why God put us here. He heard the instruction to Adam and Eve that there were two trees. If they partook of one, they would know the, have the knowledge between good and evil. To that point, they had only known good, had no knowledge, no understanding, no feeling of evil. Also a tree of life. That life, that tree, would have been made available to them at some point had they not succumbed to Satan. That was, I am sure, God's plan. 
If they would live according to his way, Satan would be sicked on them or given an opportunity at them. And had they withstood that onslaught, they would have been given access to the tree of life whenever God felt safe and secure in so doing. In knowing in his own heart and mind that they would never rebel against him or his ways and bring evil further into the universe, it having been introduced by Satan and his demons after their fall. He wants to be absolutely sure before he puts you and me into his kingdom with life eternal, never again to see death, that we will never, ever rebel against God. But Satan has continued. He didn't retire at all in his quest to destroy all mankind. Now, over a period of time, and I'll refer you to Genesis 6 here, and I want to read some parts of this. Verse 5, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Satan had worked on Adam and Eve, Cain, Abel, Seth, other children they may have had, and all of their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren after what happened in the Garden of Eden. And the earth had become so evil, full of lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, selfishness, envy, hatred, and murder, that... All thought, basically, was evil continually. People were after their own goals, their own purposes and desires. And it repented the Eternal that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. It had become so bad that he thought, I really made a mistake by creating people. Now, he had understood, of course, having witnessed war in heaven between Satan and his demons and the other two-thirds of the angels against himself, the hatred and the bitterness and the depth of it that can inhabit a being. But he created Adam and Eve apart from that with nothing but goodness, no depression, no misery, no frustration, no selfishness, Totally sharing, giving, loving. I know it's hard for us to even comprehend that. But there was no negative emotion there. How often do you and I have a negative emotion of one kind or another? Pretty constant and pretty consistent, isn't it? It's so easy for us to become discouraged, frustrated, self-centered, read motives in others, pick at others condemn others, judge others. It is so easy to get so involved in ourselves we become depressed. Unable, it seems, to put that aside and trust the eternal God who is not that way to live His life in us through His Holy Spirit which imparts uplifting, good, healthy, feelings, emotions, and thoughts. 
It became so bad very quickly in man's experience that jealousy and envy turned into hatred and one brother slew the other brother. Killed him because of those negative emotions that started right there in that temptation. And it had grown and grown until probably there were millions of people on earth by the time Noah was adjudged righteous and saved out of the destruction that came. People lived at that time 900 years, had lots of kids. <clears throat> and the Eternal said in verse 7, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repents me that I have made them. God hates violence. He hates negativity. He hates down-pulling emotions and feelings. He hates lust and vanity, greed, jealousy, all of those negative things that cause us distress and frustration with ourselves and with others. He doesn't want that in his universe. And in fact, when all is said and done, when the plan is complete, Satan and his demons are going to be assigned to a black hole, a pit, somewhere that can be walled off so that their emotions, their feelings, their thoughts cannot be transmitted through the universe. They will be in isolation so that they can no longer influence anything that goes on. And God is not going to let us be part of that kingdom unless He is assured that we will never allow these negative emotions that we're still dealing with today to be a part of our thought process or our character. He, God, became so frustrated with mankind that he thought, I wish I'd never done it, I'm going to destroy them. But he had a problem. There was one man down there named Noah who trusted in God who looked to God, who obeyed God. Now, that would be a conundrum for you. Everybody else is wicked and really deserves to be destroyed. There is one individual who looks to and obeys me. How can I wipe him out? Well, I guess I can't, really. He's trusting me. He believes in me. He prays to me. He talks to me. He walks with me. I can't destroy him. Do you realize that we are almost at that point again on this earth where mankind is about to be destroyed completely and except God cut it short, no flesh would be saved alive? because of Satan and because of the nature of human beings that Satan reacts with. We are within a whisker of the situation the world was in when Noah was saved out of it. Even took some of his family along, even though they were not righteous as Noah was. 
But he wanted to start over with hopefully a better situation. So he was a just man. Uh, Verse 11, the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So evil thinking, negative thinking, and then that was translated from hatred to actual physical violence and killing and murder around the world, wherever mankind was at that time. It was nothing among men to commit murder. It was common. Violence everywhere. We see a world today that is becoming increasingly more violent with wars and rumors of wars. More people seemingly going nutso, leaving babies in cars to die, stabbing, shooting, killing people left and right, and it seems to be increasing exponentially as we get close to the end of this age and Satan's fury And frustration and impatience is causing a lot of this. It was a violent earth. Satan is in control of this earth. He rules it. And he is promoting hatred and violence wherever you go. What are most of the games that we call entertainment the children and grown people use on their computers, their iPhones, their iPads, and whatever else the latest thing is. Violent games. Death and destruction. Kill, kill, kill. Constantly. It seems that the entertainment world is made up of violence, sex and violence, perverted sex, and perverted sex, are the most constant themes. We have a world very similar to what it was before God destroyed mankind with the exception of eight people. Violence everywhere you look. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. Is that something that resembles the earth we live on today, where everything God made has been corrupted, whether it be attitudes of people or whether it be the corruption and pollution of the planet itself with all kinds of chemicals and misuses and poisons and abuses out of what? Greed, selfishness, desire of materiality primarily has caused most of the pollution that we see on this earth today. Make a buck no matter what it does to the environment. So we have a violent, sick world. And it is about to draw to a close because God's patience is wearing very, very thin. And if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived. It is going to become so bad that only a very, very few will still serve and obey God. It got down to one man in the past. It's not going to get that bad now. There are going to be a few. It will not be a great number, but a few, who will still serve God and will see through what Satan is doing. But that's the way it became. Now, 
In Christ's day, there were many references made in the Gospels and in the writings of Paul and the other Bible writers of people being demon-influenced, demon-possessed, and performing all manner of violent and weird and strange things to themselves and to others. Has that all gone away? Is that still around? Or did the Satan and the demons all retire after Christ left this earth? Today, you don't see it called that. We have all kinds of different words for depression and violence and negative emotions. All the D's and the A's and the TT's and whatever else there are. We got all kinds of psychiatric names for conditions. Does that mean that they're all chemical imbalances or some such thing? Or is Satan still very active and alive? Can he influence people since Genesis 6? I'd like you to turn to 1 Chronicles 21. 1 Chronicles 21. Now, this is speaking in this context of David. David, as we know from other places, was a man after God's own heart. David was a man of great energy, a great ability. Uh, whatever he did, he did with his might. When he wrote psalms, songs to God, he did it jubilantly, joyfully, happily, uh, deeply, emotionally. David was a man who had a great deal of talent, it's obvious, and a great deal of energy. And when he served God, which I think was most of the time in his life, he served in a way that whatever his hand found to do, he did it with his might. When he sinned, he sinned the same way. That's just the kind of personality that he had. He could obey God and serve God mightily, and when he got off the track, he sinned mightily. And God dealt with all those things. But in, in balance, God will be king over all Israel and the kingdom of God. So the good far outweighed the evil and the sin that David perpetrated in his life. But here I want to show you something that Satan did with David. As much a man of God as he was, Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Now, what was that all about? God had stated early on that he wished his people to trust him for their protection, for their guidance, for their help to be there when enemies arose and to take care of their enemies. Now, Israel did not always do that. Many times they took things into their own hands and often they got in trouble. Now, there were times once they had shown their hand that they were willing to fight for themselves that God said, all right, go ahead and fight. And sometimes in His mercy He delivered them when they did. But his instruction was, don't number the fighting men. You don't need to know how many men of war you have, because you will use that to calculate your strength against that of your enemies. 
and you will be drawn into war and violence and killing that is unnecessary and that God does not want. Now there's another area that when David sinned, he sinned greatly in. Once he got to killing people, he loved it. He killed tens of thousands of people with his sword. So they even sang songs about him as a man of war, that Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Now whether he killed that many with his own sword, I don't know for sure, but certainly the men that he had fighting with him, it, it started adding up easily to those numbers. He became a bloody man in that sense. He liked violence. He liked war. He relished it. And God didn't let him build his temple as a result of that. He says, your son Solomon is going to build that. As much as I love you, David, and as much as you've served me, there's a penalty for all that. You got out of balance there. That wasn't the thing for you to be doing. So here, Satan stood up and influenced David, a man of God, a strong man of God. But it was an area that David had a weakness in, and that was war and fighting, and Satan was able to get to him here. So he numbered Israel. David said to Josiah and to the ruler, or to Joab and the rulers of the people, Go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan, and bring the number of them to me, that I may know it. And Joab resisted and didn't want God, uh, David trespassing against God with Israel. But he did what the king told him to do. But the king's word, the end of verse 6, was abominable to Joab. And God was displeased with this thing. Therefore he smote Israel. Now Satan intervened in David's life and caused him to do something God had said, do not do. There was a penalty involved here, a very drastic penalty. And God directed that since David had sinned greatly, go and tell David, saying, verse 10, Thus says the Eternal, I offer you three things. Choose you one of them, that I may do it to you. Now, this is a tough choice here to have to make. All three would have caused a great deal of death and violence. David was contemplating death and violence when he numbered Israel. He was contemplating war and more war. So God said, you want violence? You want death? I'll give it to you. Here's your three choices. Either three years' famine... Three years famine would have killed an awful lot of people. No food to eat. Starving to death before David's very eyes. Or three months to be destroyed before your foes while that the sword of your enemies overtakes you. You can have famine throughout the land and kill who knows how many people. Or I will just simply turn your enemies loose on you and you will have no defense and they will kill you at will. That's not a very pleasant sounding choice either. Or else, here's the third choice. Three days, the sword of the eternal, even the pestilence in the land, and the angel of the eternal destroying throughout all the coasts of Israel. 
That doesn't sound too good either, does it? David said to Gad, verse 13, I am in a great strait. This is a very, very frustrating thing to try to decide between three great evils. Let me fall now into the hand of the Eternal, for very great are His mercies, but let not, me not fall into the hand of man. Well, he thought it through. None of it was going to be pleasant, but I think I'd rather turn myself over to God than man. Now, Satan is providing, right now, a new world order, a new world government that is going to cover the earth, And they're going to say, do it our way or die. We have the same choice to make. Do we turn ourselves over to God or to Satan and this world? That choice you are going to have to make, if you've not already made it, very soon now. Because there is going to be an economic collapse at Zephaniah 2 and other places tell us about And you will not be able to buy and sell unless you accept their new system in whatever form it comes. So you will either have to take the choice of putting yourself in the hands of God and trusting in His deliverance and His help or in the hands of Satan and the world. You have already found that trusting God is very difficult. We make choices daily, and so often we make choices of depending upon man and man's solutions, man's way, man's everything that man produces. It's very hard to turn our lives entirely over to God and trust Him with our health and our wealth, our well-being, and everything that is. It's just so hard to do. And now we're going to be offered something that is very, very difficult to do, and that is choose God above man's way. We have to make that choice now, daily, with our TVs, our other screens, our computers, movies we watch, things we listen to, things we read, things we allow to go through our minds, We need to be choosing that which is true and honest and good and uplifting. But so often we choose that which is depressing, discouraging, frustrating, accusing, hateful, envious, jealous, selfish. If you're not making the right choices day in and day out with what you allow to go through your mind, within that mind or from an outside source you're going to have a great difficulty when the time comes to choose God. Because you've been making wrong choices all along. And if you're faithful in little, you'll be faithful in much. If you're not faithful in the little things, you will not be faithful in much. So we have a challenge And that is to be faithful day by day and not listening to Satan's ways, his will, his works, and those people around us who are following Satan's way. 
And if we choose the right thought patterns, get rid of our habits of evil, our habits of wrong kind of thinking and negativity, we've got to overcome those and replace them with uplifting, inspiring, helpful thoughts rather than depression, frustration, and the things that human beings grapple with. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. But the better we do at this, day by day, the easier it's going to make to put ourselves, to make the choice of putting ourselves in God's hands rather than Satan's. But if you've been given into him all along, following his way, it's going to be real tough to suddenly do an about face and go the other way, isn't it? won't be easy. Now, is it hard to change those thoughts and to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ? Oh, my. It's a constant, second-by-second second battle. It's so easy for us to try to be thinking about something good, and without our even realizing it, our mind is way off on something where it shouldn't be. And you have to say, oh, man, I shouldn't be thinking that. Get, get away from that. But the human mind has a penchant for that. It's directionally, magnetically, somehow, lined up to go negative. And it's a struggle to go the other way. David was a man who knew God and knew Him well and prayed to Him and wrote songs about it and obeyed Him for the most part. But when it came to numbering Israel, he thought, boy, I need to know how many soldiers I got in case the king of so-and-so comes against me. Wrong deal. That cost him. So the Eternal sent pestilence upon Israel, and there fell of Israel 70,000 men. This is in a three-day period. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, he actually started destroying it, the Eternal beheld, and he repented him of the evil, and said to the angel that destroyed, It's enough. Don't destroy it completely. Stay now your hand. And the angel of the Eternal stood by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David said, I've sinned, I caused this, and now 70,000 people are dead. What have these innocent sheep done? Punish me instead. But God allowed 70,000 people to be killed there. Then David made an altar and turned to God. But David was afraid at this point. The tabernacle of the wilderness was there. Notice in verse 29. For the tabernacle of the eternal which Moses made in the wilderness and the altar of the burnt offering were at that season in the high place of Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid because of the sword of the angel of the eternal. That sin and what occurred afterward destroyed a lot of the relationship that David at that time had with God. He was afraid to go to God. You know how it is after you have sinned in some manner and it destroys your confidence, your ability 
to go to God with an open heart and an open mind because we dwell in fear. We don't know if God will wipe us off the face of the earth. We don't know if he will chasten us mildly or violently or curse us in some way. So, we're afraid to go pray. Or if we do pray, it is in great fear and trepidation and worry and concern. Sin separates us from God, is what it does. It destroys the relationship, or great, at least greatly impairs it, and eventually will destroy it if it continues. Then you have the unpardonable sin that Esau had. Unpardonable unless he, maybe in the next go-round, can repent of it. He had become so bitter and hatred-filled toward his brother that he simply could not get over it. It had destroyed his relationship with God. It had destroyed his relationship with his family. It made him so bitter he went and married against his parents' wishes and destroyed his relationship with them. He had isolated himself and was filled with nothing but hatred and animosity. That fulfills Satan's goal for Esau. And he would do that to every one of us if he possibly could. He wants us to hate God and hate man and die and be forgotten. That's how deep it goes with Satan. He was able to influence David pretty heavily, wasn't he? And cause David to commit a great sin that brought a great penalty. <clears throat> so even among the leaders, I mean, you know, we're all familiar with the story of Saul and how the demons tormented him and how David playing good music helped soothe Saul. That one's been brought up many times. So he, Satan certainly had a powerful influence on the king of Israel and on others as well. And he has that kind of influence over the kings and the rulers of this world today as well. He is able to influence them, like he did Saul, like he did David. Let's go to the book of Job, chapter 1. We're all familiar with this story, but I want to point some things out spe specifically in regards to Satan and his part in this. And what he was able to accomplish, what kind of power he has about him. I won't read the first part of it. We know that he was, Job was a righteous man with seven sons and three daughters, and he had a, a great uh, material holding of animals and so on. He's a very rich man. And his sons were feasting a great deal. Uh, they were the sons of a rich man. And the sons of the rich, the famous, and so on, the important seemingly people, often are spoiled brats and do their own thing and do their own partying. So... Job suspected, verse end of verse 5, that it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. <coughs> Thus did Job continually. He worried a lot about his children. They were not God-fearing children, it appears, for the most part, so it's something that continually concerned him. And what would happen to them? Because he served God. 
Now notice verse 6. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Eternal, and Satan came also among them. So perhaps the holy angels, but also Satan, there with them. Now we know he goes before God's throne daily to accuse you and me. He is the accuser of the brethren, the main center stage accuser of the brethren. We are only minority accusers by comparison, but when we do accuse our brethren, then we have the attitude and the approach of Satan because he is the great accuser. Accusation is not a godly attribute. It is not a godly emotion. It is not a godly thing. It's a satanic thing. So, he came there to present himself with them. And the Eternal said to Satan, Where do you come from? Then Satan answered the Eternal and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. So he apparently spent most of his time here on the earth, but he had the capacity and the ability and the permission, for that matter, to go to God's throne uh, whenever he perhaps so chose. And the Eternal said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that fears God and hates evil? Have you noticed this? Now, I think there's an important point there for us to consider. Then Satan answered the Eternal and says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan was very, very aware of Job. He knew all that Job had. He knew all that Job was. He was quite familiar with the man. And what he said to God indicated that. Now, if you are a servant of God, therefore, and you are obeying God, trying to serve him in spite of yourself, Satan is very aware of you. Understand that. Be very aware of that. If you are a servant of God in any way, you are a primary target of Satan. Being a primary target means that he will work on you more than he will anyone else. The people out in the world he has in his hand, in his pocket. Sure, he still influences them, and so do his demons. And they get more and more violent all the time, and more and more ungodly all the time. But those who are striving in the other direction are the ones that he is most concerned about because they're the ones that could get away. They're the ones that could be a part of the kingdom of God and of the bride of Christ. And if there's anything he hates, it's going to be for Christ to be married to former human beings. His bride will be higher in the universe than he is, part of the family of God. And he is a jealous, spiteful, selfish, greedy being. 
And that's where those emotions came from in the first place. And he will do everything he can to destroy you and me as we serve God. He says, of course Job fears you. Does he fear you for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his substance has increased in the land. Come on, God. This is a no-brainer. Of course he likes you. You gave him everything he could possibly want. You bless him on every side. You protect him. You take care of him. Why wouldn't he? But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Satan was very conniving and very subtle here. His way of thinking, brethren, his mentality, is that if he take everything good from you, you will hate God and turn against God. Satan would love to take away from us any happiness, any joy, any love, any kindness, any concern and care for one another. He'd love to take it away. Any semblance of affection for God or each other is his target. He does not have love. He has hate. God is love. And when we succumb and bow over to Satan is when we have thoughts that are ungodly toward each other. And we begin to pick at and hurt one another. So what happens? Satan is able to use us to remove love, to remove concern, to remove anything good among us. And he can go among the angels of God at the throne of God and before the very throne of God himself. So does he have access to the church of God and all of God's people? Yes, he does. And does he take away every blessing, everything from God that he can from us? And try to leave us miserable, frustrated, lonely, depressed, upset, bitter, angry, hateful, distrusting, and frustrated. That he would love to do. That is his biggest goal in life other than destroying God is to destroy the children of God. He tried to destroy God and failed. He will try again and fail. But in the meantime, he's done a pretty good job of destroying people. From Adam to Noah, from Noah to Christ, and from Christ to now. He's pretty good at it. So he tries to take away good. He will provide famine, pestilence, war, Hatred. Where does divorce come from? Where does murder come from? Where does thievery, lying, come from? Straight from Satan the devil. His emotions. His desires. 
He has the capacity to plant those things in our minds and emotions, has and does. Just like he did with David. And he thought it would work with Job here as well. You've hedged him about. Put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. I know how to handle Job, Satan says. I know what will work on that guy. Think he isn't conniving? The Eternal said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only upon himself put not forth your hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Eternal. And there was another day when Job's sons were drinking and having a party. And there came a messenger to Job, verse 14, and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. The Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain your servants with the edge of the sword, and I, I only am escaped alone to tell you. Question. Did the Sabaeans do this just because they didn't like Job? Did they do this out of their own human desire to take those animals? No. We've seen the setup here. Satan went to God, said, take away what he's got. You know who put the thoughts in the mind of those Sabaeans to come do that? Satan the devil. He was able to easily influence those people who tended to be warlike anyway and who were not servants of God. He very easily influenced them to come kill Job's servants and to steal and kill that which he had didn't just come from their human nature. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and has burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell you. One servant escaped and said, The fire of God has come down and killed all your sheep and all your servants. Now, why would the servant take that attitude in the first place? Because a human being tends to think of others with motive, bad motive. Job, you must have sinned because God has destroyed your sheep and your servants. Job hadn't sinned at all. It wasn't the fire of God. Satan brought fire down upon the sheep and the servants and killed them all on the spot. He has that kind of power. He still has it, whereby he can do such things as God allows. You'll notice here, it was only with permission. But the prince of the power of the air has the capacity to send what men would call the fire of God. Even our government and the insurance companies call disasters an act of God to get out of paying the bill. When it may not be an act of God at all. Does God send tornadoes and hurricanes, earthquakes... And disasters of that nature, just willy-nilly, upon his whims? That's not the way he thinks. Satan thinks the other way. 
He's able to do these things. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and carried them away and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell you. So Satan influenced the Chaldeans as well to come and create great destruction and thievery and death. Satan knew just where to stop, didn't he? He allowed one to escape in each case to go give the message to Job, which he knew would be a message very distressing and revolting and frustrating to Job because Satan had in mind to cause Job to turn against God and to curse him. So he was able to direct things specifically enough that all servants in each case was killed but one. Satan was able to preserve one for his purposes to discourage Job, to turn Job against God. You think he can't act and react and do things? While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. Now here's something that Job had feared. He feared his children were ungodly and were sinning, and it worried him continually. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. But I only am escaped alone to tell you. Again, one messenger. A great wind. What form was it? Tornado? Hurricane? Probably not, but could have very easily been a tornado. Destroyed the house and killed everybody there but one servant. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped God. He had seen all material things that he enjoyed destroyed. He was a penniless poor man at this point, and his children were all dead. He had lost almost everything that he liked, appreciated, and loved with the exception of his wife, who later said, curse God and die. So things were pretty bad. And what did he do? He fell on his face and worshipped God. What would we do, brethren, if God turned Satan loose on us to whatever degree and destroyed what we had? What would we do Would we fall on our face and worship God? Let me ask another question. What did we do? God destroyed the house of worship that we went to. He destroyed the leadership that we had. He left us scattered in spiritual famine, pestilence, and disease, and war. What have we done? Some have cursed God. Some have departed from God. Some are still as Laodicean and eh, as ever. Very, very few have fallen on their face and worshipped God in all this destruction. God directed it, just as he did with Job. 
God started the whole thing. Have you noticed, Job? Oh, yeah, I have. I noticed how you take care of Job. You're a respecter of persons and you take care of him. Will things get worse for Job here in this story? How about us? Will things get worse or better? Let's go on. He said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Eternal gave, and the Eternal has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Eternal. What if your husband died? What if your wife died? What if all your children were wiped out in car accidents overnight? What if something happened to your bank account and you lost your job and you were suddenly penniless? The government cut off your Social Security or your welfare or your food stamps or whatever it is you get that you subsist upon. Would you say, God has given, God has taken away, blessed be the name of the Eternal. You know, God didn't have a whole lot of concern when he sicked Satan on Job. He knew Job pretty well. And Job was truly a righteous man. Had some self-righteousness, which God was working on here, but... God was pretty sure this one would remain steadfast and faithful no matter what was done. Everything was taken away, essentially. In all this, Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly, or thought evil thoughts about God, or why has God done this to me? Chapter 2, again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Eternal, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Eternal. Seems like he does this on a fairly regular basis, right? And the Eternal said to Satan, again God initiated the conversation, From where do you come? He said, From going to and fro on the earth. And the Eternal said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there's none perfect like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and hates evil. And still he holds fast his integrity, although you moved me against him to destroy him without cause. He says it didn't work, Satan. You took away everything he had, even his children. And he still worships me and loves me and doesn't blame me for it. Would that be enough of an answer for Satan? I think not. Verse 4, And Satan answered the Eternal and said, Skin for skin, yes, all the man has will he give for his life. But put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Satan has a pretty deep bag of tricks. He was able, by his power, to take away and destroy and kill everything, basically, that Job had. Job was clinging to his life, to his faith, to his trust in God. And now he was about to have sickness, bad health. 
So God had allowed Satan to take away all his wealth. Now he was going to allow him to take away his health. Two of the things we cherish the most about ourselves. The Eternal said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but save his life. You can do anything to him, his body, that you wish. Just don't take his life. That was the only limit God put upon him. So went Satan forth from the presence of the Eternal. He got out of there in a hurry. Oh boy, here we go again. Wow, I got him this time. And smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. I have seen people with one boil. And the utter misery and pain and screaming delirium that can come from one boil can be devastating. What if you had them from head to foot all over your body? You couldn't sit, you couldn't lay down, you couldn't stand. Boils from the bottom of your foot to the top of your head. <coughs> that would be about as excruciating a pain as a human being could suffer. Satan knew that. I don't even have to say that. Whatever Satan did to this man, you can imagine or can believe, would be one of the worst things that could possibly be done to a human being. That's Satan's mentality. So we don't have to compare this necessarily to having your fingernails pulled out or something. You can rest assured Satan would bring the worst possible. And boils from head to foot has to be one of the most painful experiences that a man could suffer and be alive. Satan just thinks that way. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself with all, and he sat down among the ashes. He's trying to scrape the top off the boils to let the throbbing sensations stop, to let the pus out so that it would relieve some pressure. Just took a piece of pottery and just scraped those to try to get some kind of relief. Then said his wife to him, You do still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. You have a way out, Job. Curse God and die. See, she was thinking that God was causing all this. Now, God was behind testing Job. But Satan is the one who did these horrible things to Job. And then probably the only human being he had left alive on the earth that he might have loved was his wife. And she said, curse God and die. Get it over with, Job. That's real encouraging, you know, right then when you've got boils all over you. To have the wife of your bosom say, curse God and die. Get it over with. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. God can bless me. God can curse me. 
I can't turn and curse God. You're crazy, woman. Do you think I'd do that? No way. He was in pretty sad shape here. Are we beginning to understand a little more the capacities, the wiles, the abilities of Satan to manipulate people, to manipulate certain situations, to manipulate weather, to manipulate kings and leaders, to go to war and violence? He can do all these things, and we have record of it here. I'm almost done and I didn't know it. <clears throat> Let's go to Matthew 16 along these same lines. I'm not necessarily trying to impress you with Satan. He is the most vile being on, in the universe. But he is also our enemy. Principalities and powers of the air, as we read there in Ephesians 6.11. We need to understand our enemy and understand what he is capable of so that we kind of understand what we are up against in our daily lives. Here in Matthew 16, uh, uh, it's, this is a conversation between Christ and Peter. Uh, Verse 22, Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from you, eternal, this shall not be to you. Now, he had just told Peter that he was going to put him in charge of the church, that he was to be the primary leader, the one who would make the final decisions. James made one there in Acts uh, in a consultation, but Peter was one of the people in that case who was involved in the argument. So James was the one who took charge to render decisions, since Peter was needed to be recused in that particular case, since he was one of the defendants, if you will. But Peter was the one Christ had placed in charge. Now, here's the head man. Here's the leader of the New Testament Church of God. And he disputed with Christ that Christ was going to die. Well, it's not going to happen to you. That won't happen. Now, it was the purpose of God that Christ come here on the earth and die for our sins. And what Peter was trying to tell him is, you don't have to do that. You're not going to do that. And it was contrary to the will and the purpose of the Father and the Son at this point. Because that is what they had decided had to be done for your sake and mine. So what did he say? He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you savor not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Now how so? Mankind wants to live. Mankind doesn't want to die. We don't want to see our friends die. Job didn't want to see his children die. He didn't want to see them sin in the event that they might, and God would curse them and kill them. And maybe they did, and God allowed it. So the humanness in Peter was, I don't want you to die. You won't die. 
But Satan was using Peter's own human emotions against him. And he created a great offense against the Father and the Son by denying that Christ would die. Now, he was playing into Satan's hands. See that? Satan's purpose and goal is that all mankind die, including Christ, when he was here on the earth. And Satan was working through Peter against the Father and the Son. Satan didn't want Christ to die for you and me. He wanted us to die in our own sins. Christ went on to explain, you're you an offense. He called him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. That tells me that Christ knew where those thoughts, supposedly benign and loving from Peter, came from. They came directly from Satan the devil, who was working against God's plan. And Satan didn't even know, I mean, Peter didn't even know he was being used of the devil here. He just thought he was having righteous, loving, kind thoughts toward Christ. That's as far as his mind went. In other words, he didn't know he was being used as a tool of the devil. Do you and I like to admit it, or even be conscious of it, when we are being tools of the devil? It happens to every one of us, you know. It happens to every one of us. We become tools of the devil when he is trying to divide, to discourage, to create negativity, to create unrest, to create distrust, insecurity. When he influences us toward the hurt of other human beings made in the image of God, we're being used as tools of Satan. Understand that, brethren. Those thoughts come from him. They don't come from God. The actions that follow come from Satan, not from God. Peter was an unwitting tool of Satan here, fighting against Christ and didn't even know it. Anytime we say anything that could hurt, discourage, put down, frustrate, or depress another human being, Satan is using our emotions to help destroy any love, any closeness, any relationship that he can between husband and wife, between siblings, between brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what he's there for. And we've already seen that he's very, very aware of each of us as we seek to obey God. Are we tools of God to promote happiness, peace, prosperity, unity? Or are we tools of Satan the devil to produce division and animosity, frustration and discouragement and quitting. Meditation is a very important key in our relationship with God. I suggest you think very, very deeply about what we're talking about here today.
Get behind me, Satan. What would you think if you said something angry, frustrating toward another human being here, and they turned to you and said, Get behind me, Satan. You would be highly offended, I predict. We would argue with them. But Christ explained. He said to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Be willing to die for me. Not just say, you're not going to die. If you really want to follow me, take up your stake and come follow me. Get hung beside me. Okay? Pretty strong words here. Whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. We have to be willing to die for his sake. Paul said, I die daily. Did he die every morning before breakfast and get resurrected in time to eat? No, he crucified discouragement, doubt, fear. He crucified and killed impatience, frustration, hatred, bitterness, anger, animosity, bad words, bad thoughts. The human mind is filled with lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, selfishness, and all the works of the flesh there in Galatians 5. That's what we are made of. That's what Satan influenced Adam and Eve to and what we have been ever since. And that's what has to be crucified every day. And if we try to save our human lives, we will lose eternity. Instead, we have to put God first, crucify ourselves, and die with Christ and live forever. So whether it be David, who was the most beloved of God, king of Israel ever, whether it was Job, whom Satan could not turn from God, though he tried desperately, or whether it was Peter, the early New Testament leader of the church, who was influenced by Satan, it doesn't matter. He's there for all of us. He takes every chance he can to influence us and to put evil, nasty, rotten, selfish thoughts in our minds. And we succumb how often? How much? How deeply? How completely? When God says, overcome and sit with me in my throne, we have to overcome Satan, we have to overcome the world, and we have to overcome our own minds and emotions and control our thoughts and our words. It's easy to say, overcome. It's hard to do. It's hard to change the way you think and the way you react and get your relationship with God 
on the up and up where it belongs and with man where it belongs. That's why we've said so many times and the scriptures say it so many times. If you can't get along with your brothers here on this earth, you will not be allowed the chance to be in the kingdom of God and screw it up too. A lot to meditate about there.